all of us have messed up. And a lot of us learned at some point from a parent or teacher how to apologize. But apologizing can sometimes feel more complex in the professional setting. In this episode, what the research suggests on the art of constructing an apology at work. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 535. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the practices that every leader needs, uh, well, actually every human being needs, is the ability to construct an apology. And, and not just construct it, but actually to do it in an authentic way. I uh, think we've all received some kind of advice at some point on how to actually give an appropriate apology. And yet it is something that so many of us have really never received training on or even really looked at the research on how we can actually craft an apology that's meaningful, appropriate, and engenders trust. I'm so glad today to welcome someone who's absolutely an expert on trust, is going to help us on this and really help us to be so much more effective in our communications. I'm glad to introduce to you Sandra Sutcher. She is an internationally recognized trust researcher and professor of management practice at Harvard Business School. She studies how organizations build trust and the vital role leaders play in the process. Before joining Harvard, she was a business executive for 20 years, served on corporate and nonprofit boards, and has been the chair of the Better Business Bureau. As an advisor to the Edelman Trust Barometer, her research has been featured in several national publications. She is the author, with Shalene Gupta, of the new book, The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, Regain It. Sandra, it's so nice to meet you. Well, thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Apologies. Boy, this is something that, you know, so many of us just never received a lot of training on. Is it is it something you ever received any formal training on? I'm curious. I apologize. Absolutely no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, everything that uh, that I'm going to tell you is something that I've learned from studying it and trying to understand because I study trust and part of uh, trust recovery is the requirement to apologize. And that led Shalene Gupta, my co-author, and me to say, that's interesting. I wonder what you should do in order to apologize. So that's why we went down the path of really trying to get pretty granular about what it is that makes for a good apology. There's so much in this book, and I hope folks will go and look at so much more. There's, there's so many places I wanted this conversation to go. But when I saw the research that you included on crafting an apology, I thought, wow, that's something that all of us could do a better job at because we're all going to screw up, right? It's just and a big part of trust, I would imagine, and, and your research certainly demonstrates too, is that, yes, we're going to screw up. What do, how do we handle it when we do, right? That's, that's oftentimes the bigger question, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would say so. And I, I think that particularly as business people, I think the first myth to try to stamp out is the notion that you shouldn't apologize. So, you know, no one in business school says, 
guess what? Today we're going to have a class and it's all going to be about all the things you're going to do wrong and how you're going to tell people that you're sorry for them. There's this norm in business that says, you know, at the most, it's a kind of a passive voice, mistakes were made reference yeah. uh, to something that's been done wrong. Uh, but if you, when you study trust uh, and if your goal is to restore trust, you actually need to apologize as part of achieving that goal. It's just a different thing that you need to make happen if you really are interested in having people trust you again. There's also, um, along with that, this notion, and I've I've heard this before, like, oh, well, we don't want to say the word sorry because then we're admitting liability and and all the things that go along with that. And I and obviously we're not here to give legal advice, but I I, I think sometimes we take that too far. We've heard something like that and we like, oh, I shouldn't say anything or I should try to couch it as small as possible. And and yet one of the first things that you look at in the elements of a good apology is an expression of regret of the person who's offended in some way expressing how sorry they are. How important is the actual word choice in that? So I, I think it's very important. You know, if if I say something like I, I can't even do it because I've studied this for so long. I'm trying to think of like what what I would say instead of saying I'm sorry. But I've learned I had this one situation happen when I was teaching where there was a particular problem in a class that I had. And I came in and gave what I thought was a really great explanation. And I walked out and I thought, well, I handled that pretty well. And a couple of students who knew me well came up afterwards and they said, you know what you never said? You never said you're sorry for what happened. Uh, uh, and so it's honestly hard for us to understand how you're thinking about this because you told us what happened, why you think it happened, but you never acknowledged that you were sorry that it occurred. And that was like a huge wake up call for me that it wasn't enough to just give an explanation. It wasn't enough to explain to people, well, here's how we got down this sorry path. Uh, and so it was really important to understand because the students at that point were basically saying to me, we still don't trust you, right? Uh, You're telling us, you know, something bad happened. We're worried it could happen again. Uh, and you haven't given us enough reason to trust you. So the actual phrase, I'm sorry, is a really right. powerful and important, uh, important thing for us to ac actually say. Right. Yeah. And the researchers who've done work on this, they identify six different ways that people apologize. And so let me just really quickly sort of say what they are. And then I'll come to there's additional research that says some of these are better than others uh -huh. if you're actually trying to craft really great apologies. So so the six elements are, you know, Dave, as you just said, the first is an expression of regret where the offender expresses how sorry they are. Uh, the second is an explanation, you know, and here the offender describes the reasons for the problem. Third is an acknowledgement of responsibility. And in this case, it's the offender making a statement that demonstrates that they understand their part in the trust betrayal. Uh, the next one is a declaration of repentance you know, where the offender promises not to make the same mistake again. Uh, then there's an offer of repair where the offender offers a solution for rebuilding trust. Uh, and the last is a request for forgiveness, uh, you know, where an offender explicitly asks for pardon. 
Now, in our personal lives, we probably, for better or worse, had people use all six of those at different times. And we probably have ourselves used each one of those at different times and working with people that we work with and who we may have disappointed or even whose trust we may have betrayed. Uh, but what they, the researchers were looking for was what makes for the most powerful apology in a company corporate context. Uh, and here they, they sort of out of those six, they took three uh, and they found, it's not that they took them, they found through their research that when you use these three, these are the three that really help people understand that you truly are have done something wrong that you want to talk with them about. So the first thing that they recommend is that you start with an acknowledgement of responsibility. Now, this is particularly important in a company setting, whether you're running a small team, whether you have a small business, the first thing that people want to hear from you is that you know you did something wrong and that you are holding yourself responsible for what happened. And that's part of rebuilding trust. Because quite honestly, if you don't hold yourself responsible, then they're wondering, well, who is responsible for this? And if you don't feel you are, am I talking to the right person? So it's really important to acknowledge your responsibility for it. And this is a classic place where this lawyer advice about don't acknowledge that we did something wrong can be quite damaging. And just as a side note, I think that there it's prudent to try to think about how it is that you express yourself and limit uh, legal liability. And that's one goal. But if your goal is to recover lost trust, it requires a different set of actions uh, of which an acknowledgement of responsibility, which lawyers might say, don't do that, is actually the beginning of the, uh, the recovery process. So, so the first of these is just to acknowledge responsibility. The second is to, we think the second one should be an explanation. The third thing that you're supposed to then do is an offer of repair. And that last step is really important because a lot of what we wonder in business is, okay, you said you did something wrong. You have an explanation for why you did it. How will I know it won't happen again? I'd love to ask you about the acknowledgement of responsibility piece, because I think that my, my sense is, is that this is where the connection comes between the what happened or what the offense was and me personally. Am I connecting those two correctly? Yeah, that's a really good insight because it is, you're not looking at that point to the individual as a representative of the institution, right? And, and so you're exactly right. That acknowledgement of responsibility is not, I'm so sorry, Boeing did something wrong. That has no weight with me. If it had come, which it didn't in any meaningful way from Dennis Mullenberg, uh, who was the CEO at the time of the crashes, uh, to a way where he convincingly told us, which he did not, that he personally took responsibility and acknowledged the harm that they had created. And, and so it is definitely that person to person, these are harms that have done to people, trust that's been betrayed, and you want someone to stand up and acknowledge responsibility for what's occurred. And we're referring to the 737 MAX situation, which you document in detail in the book. And it's fascinating, as are so many other the case studies on how organizations, when they make mistakes, it is interesting how often that 
the apology maybe is kind of shrouded in the corporate lens or Boeing did this or whoever did this. And we don't necessarily, as a leader, think about it from a personal responsibility standpoint. And and one of the things I'm really hearing you say is that when we're apologizing, yes, it may have been the institution, the organization that made a misstep, but to really take personal responsibility for that and to and and to take ownership over that, that that really makes a big difference on how this lands. Well, I, I think it does because what we count on, if we're going to trust that organization and that person's team again, is that they know that they did something wrong. So that's the first thing we care about is can they see the same thing that I saw? And the second thing that we care about is do they acknowledge their responsibility for what occurred? And that's important because that's what we're counting on to let us trust them again, right? Because I'm not going to trust someone who doesn't take responsibility for something that's happened to me. Why would I, right? And it's a very personal kind of trust at that level, uh, if that's the nature of the engagement that we're talking about. And then that's as true for Dennis Mullenberg and Boeing as it is for all the corporate leaders who have faced this moment of saying, we inadvertently or usually it's inadvertently, have created some harm. And now it's our time to kind of step up uh, as the leader, as the individual in charge, whether you're at the department level and a small business, and to say, you know, I acknowledge responsibility for that. It's really important to building trust again. You mentioned these three elements that are most helpful, especially from a business standpoint. And I think you mentioned in the book that, you know, ideally, if all six are there, great, but especially these three. And the explanation, as you mentioned, is one of those. And I'm I'm curious about the explanation where the offender describes the reasons for the problem. And I sense there's a distinction here probably between explanation and excuse. And I know a lot of times, I know I've caught myself doing this. Bonnie has certainly told me I've done this before, where in my mind, I'm giving an an explanation, but I'm actually making an excuse. And when you see people do this, where's that distinction between when it's explanation and when it starts to become excuse? So uh, that's a, a, a really good insight. And it's very hard even for an explanation not to come across as an excuse, Right. So even if I'm offering what I think is an explanation, I may either communicate it in a way that it makes it sound like I'm making an excuse or the other person may sort of hear that even that's what's not intended. But we have an example in the book that I want to read for everyone here, because this is an example of what it sounds like when you're explaining what went wrong and when you're taking acknowledging responsibility. So PricewaterhouseCoopers, as we know, uh, is responsible for guaranteeing uh, that the right picture get recognized at the Academy Awards. Oh, yeah. Right. And so what had happened is in 2017, mistakenly, they said that La La Land uh, had one best picture instead of a movie called Moonlight. And so, you know, Tim Ryan, who was the uh, head of the U.S. PwC practice, then still is, was responsible for responding, which they did with lightning. So that early the next morning, uh, they had an apology up on their website. And here's what it said. It said, we sincerely apologize to Moonlight, La La Land, Warren Buffett, Faye Dunaway, and Oscar viewers for the error that was made during the award announcement for Best Picture. 
So that was their apology, their acknowledgement of responsibility. They then go on to say, this is their explanation. The presenters had mistakenly been given the wrong category envelope and when discovered was immediately corrected. And then the offer of repair, we are currently investigating how this could have happened and deeply regret that this occurred. And then they go on to appreciate the grace with which the nominees, the Academy, ABC, and Jimmy Kimmel had handled the situation. So then for the 2018 Academy Awards, they unrolled a multi-step process to prevent this mix-up from happening again. What had happened is that one of the people who were responsible for making sure that the right envelope got into the right presenter's hand uh, had been on their cell phone. And so the first thing they did is they forbade people from using cell phones and employees involved in the ceremony were required to memorize all the winners. Right. So, so that's a great example that uh, an apology is, uh, is gives you permission to then take the steps you need to do to ensure that the mistake that you made won't happen again. And this process of what happens after the apology, because uh, the you know when you tell people, here's my offer of repair, that's like, please trust me that I'm going to do these things. Uh, and we really liked this story uh, because PwC had done very concrete things to try to remedy the situation so it couldn't be repeated. What a great example that is, not only of the apology itself, but then the follow through. And, you know, you mentioned earlier of that declaration of repentance, <laughs> you know, promising not to do the same thing again. And I don't think they even literally said that, but they certainly took action on it. And as you were saying that, I was thinking of an opposite example, Sandra, I, I make very casual coin collector. <laughs> and so I, I'm on the US Mint mailing list and I order my one coin a year. And I got an email a couple weeks ago on a rollout that didn't go well from the Mint. Uh, they apparently announced a new coin and their website got overwhelmed with orders. And they posted this, what sounded to me like a really well thought, well crafted apology letter. And it detailed out what had happened where they went wrong, uh, what they were going to do to resolve the problem, delaying the next rollout, this whole thing. And I thought, wow, what a good letter. And then I saw on Twitter <laughs> later that day, someone had mentioned it, and they posted all of the past four or five letters that had come out in all the previous product rollouts, and they were almost exactly word for word the same. And they had promised to repair these issues, but apparently had never been repaired. So they had, while the letter and the apology was wonderful, the issue clearly kept repeating itself because you could you could see people posting screenshots of years past the, the same letter, the same version. And it just made me think like, in a way, it was almost worse than if they hadn't apologized at all, because you saw this consistent pattern of just not really taking action after the apology. And so, so that piece just seems so critical. Yeah, so what a horrifying and edifying story that is. So, you know, if I were inside that organization, I would be, you know, ripping myself apart with shame for having committed that I was going to fix something and then keeping apologizing for it and not actually fixing it. So you're right. If I tell someone, I know I did something wrong, here's the steps I'm taking to fix it, and I do it again, you know, now we have cemented the fact that I am not trustworthy. 
right? And then I'm not trustworthy on two counts. One is you can't trust what I say. Uh, and the other is you can't trust that I have a commitment to follow through on the actions that I have said I'm going to take. Uh, and so it, they are worse off. And I hope that honestly that, you know, the Twitter uh, people include people inside the Mint so that they can start to try to figure out how much trust they've lost and what will happen. But I've got a question for you. Uh, is that going to stop you from making next year's order? Probably not because I've been a collector long enough. And it's one of those situations where there's not a lot of other places to go, <laughs> right? Like no one else prints coins in the United States or mints coins rather. But yeah, it would be probably if I had a choice. And of course, so many of us in organizations and industries, we do have choices and our customers have choices too on where they go. So if we don't take action over time, it really makes a big difference. And that's one of the things that really strikes me that comes out of the book as a whole and the research around trust is that I mean, you can say the right thing in the moment, of course, and you, and you should, but you you also really look through this through the lens of the long term. So much about the apology is what do we do with it in the medium to long term because people are going to notice and pay attention to that also. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And the point you bring up is really an important one which is that trust in a situation where we have limited options. So you stop trusting. It doesn't mean that you'll necessarily stop doing business. But as you just said, if another source opens up <laughs> that you can get coins from, you know, you will certainly check that source out because you have this history now of understanding what it's like to do business with this. It's a monopoly. And so you have to do business with them. But what it does is that, you know, this lack of trust will open you up in a big way to alternatives in the market. Right, exactly. And, and that's, a, that's a good reminder for all of us as we think about the, the craft and the apology. When you have looked at so many of these different examples, where do you see that people and leaders in particular tend to go wrong on not framing the apology effectively? So it turns out that where they go wrong is their inability to understand what the harm looks like to someone else. And so, you know, you could say that that's a lack of empathy and there's fascinating and somewhat dismaying research about the fact that once you are in a position of leadership, there are some <laughs> neurotransmitters called dopamine that get released into your system uh, that start to close down your powers of empathy. So most people actually get promoted to leadership roles because of their ability to care about others, to care for the good of the group, uh, and to try to help the group advance its objectives. Once they're in that leadership role, all of a sudden, this neurotransmitter gets it called dopamine is released into their system, and it starts to turn their attention. It's a reward mechanism that really juices the, the response that you have to rewards that actually reward you. And so all of a sudden, you start thinking about, well, people are not so much people as they become a means to your end, and you stop being able to see the world through their perspective. And so there's a, a wonderful and awful research study that was done about this. And I'll just give you the punchline. Uh, people were put into two groups. One group was helped to think about itself as being in a low power mode. Uh, and the other group was in the high power mode. And the end of the research study was that they asked people in both groups, 
to very quickly snap their fingers and then to take a magic marker and write the letter E on their forehead. And what they found uh, is that the people who were in the high power group wrote the letter E on their forehead so that they could read it. And the people in the low power group wrote the letter E so that the other person could read it. Fascinating. And so of all the research that we found in, in doing research for the book, to me, that said that if you're in a leadership role at whatever level, you're in this kind of continuing battle between caring about the group as a whole and the individuals in it, uh, and this reward system that keeps saying, pay attention to your own needs. These things are rewarding to you. And I, I'd like to tell the story because I think it helps people be prepared for the fact uh, that this is what's going on inside them. It's not personal. This is just what's happening in their body. But it is something that once you're aware of it, you can start to say, okay, I think I've just lost my empathy gene, right? Yeah. I, I, and let me try to do right now to understand what this harm might look like from the standpoint of A, my disappointed customer, B, my disappointed employee, uh, C, my supplier, who's now pretty angry with me. And I think that way of trying to look through the other person's perspective is what allows you to recover your ability to relate to them uh, and to reestablish trust. Thank you for sharing that study. What a powerful example. Uh, and it reinforces what I've heard from so many of our guests over the years. I remember uh, Dacker Keltner, uh, who was uh, out at Berkeley on our show a few years ago, talking about the power paradox and the challenge that almost all of us have as we get more power, we tend to have less empathy. And so thinking about that from the lens of an apology, I'm curious if there's anything that you have seen, knowing that reality for almost all of us, that we do tend to have less empathy and we're probably not going to apologize as well as we might if we didn't have power. Is there anything that you've seen with folks you've worked with in your research that helps leaders to interrupt that reality a bit and to have a bit more empathy so they can be in a place where they would construct a better apology? So uh, before I answer your question, uh, so it was Dacker Keltner's work that introduced us to the power part paradox. So I just oh, want to how give funny. A, a shout out to him here because I'm a huge fan of his work. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, and, and his book. And he just opened my eyes to this phenomenon of power and the connection between power and leadership, which really informed our thinking in the book and thinking about, well, why, you know, let's find some leaders who seem to have been able to get through this and out the other side. Uh, so he does marvelous work. And so it's great that he's been on your show. So there are two things that I've seen that work. There is actually quite a lot of academic research that says that reflection, writing things down, uh, is a way to slow down your processing uh, and to help you see around corners that you might be blind to. So if I were a leader in a position where I was going to have an important meeting communication with an individual or a group about something that happened, I would spend some time, you know, either on my laptop or with a piece of paper, really trying to think about who are these other people? How do they think about what went on? And really trying to use my, I call it their moral imagination to understand how the world looks like from their standpoint. And I forced myself to do that in enough detail, not just sort of a cursory top level view, so that I could prepare myself 
to be someone who understands who they are and where they're coming from. So, so that's the first thing I would do is I would actually try to write in order to get myself into a more reflective state and not just allow these, you know, this dopamine to course through my system and to determine how I respond. Is there a prompt or anything that's helpful? Is, is it as simple as like me just stopping and taking five minutes to reflect on and do some writing or some journaling? Or is it helpful to be more intentional of, you know, I'm going to be writing or journaling about this particular person or this particular group in interaction? I, I'm, I'm so curious, like what that, that looks like, if there's any data on it. So I don't know about data. I think as a, as a business executive uh, and as someone who studied this, what I would recommend is the more particular, the better. So I think that, you know, the reason I'm recommending this is not to think about, you know, I'm going to be a good person in the world. It's I'm going to be meeting with this person. Uh, here's the situation that's occurred. Here's how I see it. And here's how the other person might be seeing this same situation. And then I try to understand further, well, who is this person? You know, what is driving them right now? What interest do they have? And how did this situation sort of hurt them in ways that I might not understand? Ah, that's powerful. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, and just to to finish the point, uh, the second way that you could fight this is to have a kind of a a general principle uh, that helps drive your behavior. So, I'm a very big fan of Dave Cote, you know, the storied CEO and chairman of Honeywell, who led the single best turnaround, at least in many people's view, uh, in a manufacturing company, you know, in the early 2000s. And uh, I wrote a case about him. He's written about quite a lot in the book. And one of the students in a class that he came to asked him, does he have a way of trying to check himself? when he's going to make like a tough decision. And he said, yeah, he, he actually always asks himself, am I being fair? Huh. And so for him, fairness becomes a lens through which he forces himself to think about how someone else would view his actions. So it's not just, am I being fair? Meaning, do I think I'm fair? But would someone else agree with me that I'm being fair? And so I think that that's another mechanism that you can use. So there's the journaling, which is to get inside your own head uh, and in order to get inside someone else's. And then there's this question that you can ask yourself. And we talk, you know, one of our core dimensions of trust is fairness. And it's so important for people that they feel that we are trusting and they, they trust us because we are acting in a way that they think is fair. And there are lots of different kinds of fairness. We describe them in the book. And uh, in Dave Cote's case, what he is able to do in his actions is to balance the interests of different groups because he understands them so clearly and he tries to be fair to all of them. Thank you so much for sharing that. What useful and practical things all of us could do is to take a few minutes just to write that down, ask ourselves that question. I was so tempted, Sandra, to frame this conversation around fairness because there's so much in the book. And I hope that folks will grab the book. And if you read nothing else, I mean, there's so much, there's so much good stuff, but the section on fairness, I mean, such a really useful lens for leaders to think about how they're showing up in an organization in a way that really does engender trust. For those who uh, would do get into the book, Sandra, one of the other, I know, invitations that you have is a way for 
folks to participate online on the website as far as engaging in a conversation about trust. Would you mind sharing that for for folks who might want to dive in on that? So uh, on our website, uh, which is thepoweroftrustbook.com, there's a document called uh, Join the Trust Conversation. It will be linked uh, to the contact page. And what it basically says is we're inviting anybody, uh, and that's all of you who are listening, to you know identify yourself and to write something to us about trust. And so th- this could be, here's a trust dilemma that I'm facing. Here's a situation where I felt I handled trust pretty well. Uh, here's a situation where I think I blew it. What did I do wrong? Can you help me? Or can how do I think about this? Uh, and we're using this as a way to not just begin a conversation with people who are thinking about this, but to as researchers to try to get more texture for us on how it is that these issues are presenting themselves inside real businesses with people who are trying to contend with these issues all the time. And so that's why we thought we needed to have some kind of a way for people who read the book and are interested in this topic to communicate to us so that at least we can see what's on people's minds. Well, thank you for the invitation. I will be putting a link in the episode notes in this week's weekly leadership guide, of course. And it's a really good opportunity to do two things. One is to do the reflection and writing we already talked about. Secondly, to contribute a bit to some of the research that's going on on this. Sandra, speaking of the research, you have been in depth in this research for many years. You have built your career academically around it, especially in the last couple of years as you've been writing the book and looking at all these examples of trust. I'm curious, what's something that you've changed your mind on? Well, I think like other people, everyone, I I really did think that trust could never be regained. You know, so I grew up like most people on this notion that trust is this fragile vehicle document thing, and that once it's lost, it's gone forever. And, you know, what we found is, number one, large, well-capitalized companies don't go under even if they've had trust breaches. So we're still buying cars from VW. You know, Boeing is in and out of being able to fly planes. But what happens is that there are some companies that actually are able to recover lost trust. And so that to me was a big surprise that there are processes and practices. And so we tell the story in the book, you can read it about a Japanese company called Recruit Holdings, which had a scandal so great Uh, in the 1980s, that the prime minister of Japan and his entire cabinet had to resign as a result. And today, Recruit is a $20 billion corporation, revenues the same revenue stream as Salesforce. It's got 65,000 employees worldwide. Uh, So if Recruit can recover from a scandal in which an entire prime minister and his entire cabinet have to resign, there is hope for the rest of us that we can do something about some of the mistakes that we make. Sandra Sutcher is the co-author of the book, The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, Regain It. Sandra, thank you so much for your work. Great. Thank you, Dave. A pleasure to be here. Several related episodes, if you found this conversation helpful. One of them is episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. My guest on that episode was Dacker Keltner. We talked about his book, The Power Paradox, and his research looking at how as we obtain more power, 
the tendency for all of us to have less empathy. And of course, empathy comes directly into this conversation today, episode 254, for more on that. Uh, Also going along with apologies, hopefully, if we do it well and we do it genuinely, perhaps comes forgiveness. No one knows forgiveness better than Edith Eager. She was on episode 336, inviting us to make the choice for compassion. Edith is one of the survivors of Auschwitz and took us on the journey through that experience in that episode, and more importantly, what she discovered along the way about compassion and how she has brought it to so many. What an inspiring message she has. Episode 336, a must-listen if you haven't heard Edith's message before. And then finally, episode 497 will be helpful to you, the way into difficult conversations. Uh, When apologies are coming up, often that is a difficult conversation. And Kwame Christian was my guest on that episode, an expert negotiator, helped us to really illuminate some of the key ways we can enter into difficult conversations to ultimately be helpful to both parties. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not yet set up your free membership for access, you'll want to do that because when you set up your free membership, you'll be able to search the entire library of interviews since 2011 by topic. We have this conversation filed under difficult situations. There are many conversations we've had over the years that fall under this category, and you can find all of them just by setting up your free membership and every other topic as well. Plus, you'll get access to all of the free audio courses, my own personal library with every article I found that's relevant to you, databased for several years now that I share in the weekly leadership guides. And then, of course, the weekly leadership guides themselves that come to you each week with the keynotes from each episode and also some of the most recent articles and resources that I'm constantly working on to find for you to support you in your leadership development. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Takes just a few moments and you'll be off and running with all of those resources. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Jonathan Raymond back to the show. He's the author of Good Authority and the creator of the Accountability Dial, which has been useful to so many of you on helping find more accountability in your organization and in your teams. Jonathan's joining me to discuss how to make your one-on-ones with employees more valuable. Join me for that conversation with him and have a great week in the meantime. Take care.